and there's, there's this wonderful story from I think it's the uh, the federal convention when um, it's uh, Benjamin Franklin. He just stands up after four days of constant debate and he just says, can we please stop talking about ancient Greece and Rome about only models for building a country? And there's like this awkward silence and someone says, so anyway, in Rome, the... Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Tim Elliott, an ancient historian researching populist politics in the late Roman Republic, was my guest on today's show. We had a really interesting conversation discussing an article he wrote that alludes to comparisons between the late Roman Republic and the current state of US politics, most intriguingly between Donald Trump and Julius Caesar. We explored the ideas of populism, the sources of populist support, the degradation of our institutions, and whether there is anything we can learn from looking at historical precedent. Before you listen to the interview, I would definitely recommend you give the article a read. The link is in the description below. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So here's Tim Elliott. So Tim, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on my show. Thanks for, for agreeing to chat to me. Thanks for having me. So you have written a fantastic article entitled America is eerily retracing Rome's steps to a fall. Will it turn around before it's too late? So you've basically put the, put forward the idea that maybe we're retracing our, retracing the, uh, the, the fall of the uh, the fall of the late Roman Republic, and you've drawn quite a lot of comparisons between Trump and Caesar, and their yeah quite significant similarities. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is a bit of a. I mean, there's always going to be a problem when you're comparing an event from the past and an event from the present. But it's only a problem insofar as how much this is a 100% um, accurate, you know, historicist, you might say, portrait of the past. Um, I think what the, the actual process of looking back is it's, it's an interpretive act in a lot of ways. Mm. So we're bringing where this meaning comes up when we're looking back, it's coming as much from our own understanding of the present um, and how we apply that to the past and how that interacts with our own understanding. And I think that's somewhere where ancient Rome has always provided this canvas for people um, throughout history throughout, you know, particularly since the Renaissance, Mm. we've always used uh, Republican Rome as this canvas on which to understand ourselves, 
and particularly ideas about politics. Why do you think that is? Well, I, so there is, there's a few different, you know, theories around this thing. <clears throat> I think one big idea from uh, Hans-Georg Gadamer, who I'm a big fan of, he's an early, uh, or sort of mid-20th century hermeneuticist. He was the uh, pupil of Heidegger. Okay. Um, he had this idea about the classical, which is that because of its perception as a high period, and he says that every culture has these these things that we call the classical. But you, you know, with Gadamer, he's he's talking pretty in his own experience. It's very much about uh, classical Greece and Rome. But he's saying that this high period ends up being replicated and retold back and forth, back and forth so much because it is this landmark, right? It's this landmark in the cultural consciousness. And what you enter into is this kind of constant mediation of the same ideas. And, you know, like I I live in Glasgow and I can walk out onto the street and I'm going to see all different kinds of classical literature or classical uh, architecture all up and down the street because this is, and that's just one tiny, tiny way that the the classical has been mediated back and forth, back and forth. Um, the other, there's other quite, you know, uh, more specific things. So I think in politics, for example, when Roman Republican politics started to become really big and really get a lot of interest was in the period leading up to the revolutions of the 18th century. So you had, for example, uh, the in France, you had the doctrine of absolutism was gaining a lot of force. And it was really coming from a position of um, the growth of rationalism, and so you have philosophers like Descartes, or building on Descartes, but and then uh, more contemporary people like Walter Raleigh. And people are standing up and saying, hang on, maybe we can get f- free of this medieval attitude that the classical is the peak of civilization. Maybe we are the peak of civilization. Okay. Um, but here's the, here's the twist. And they say, and our doctrine of absolutism is the manifestation of that rationality. Then you have the classicists on the other side, people like Jonathan Swift, uh, Alexander Pope, who are saying, well, actually, if we look at, you know, we look at classics, what we find there is the seeds of revolution. We see the seeds of what to do about a bad king. We see the seeds of this idea of republic, this idea of democracy. Um, And then, you know, going into the French Revolution, the the idea of republic, the idea of democracy were massively influential uh, in leading the actual um, the actual impetus for for you know codifying this idea of the new revolutionary system uh, and also even through the art that was produced and everything creating a culture of republic was modeled entirely on classical terms 
Mm. Okay, so you would suggest that perhaps the there's like a we're looking at the past with maybe some rose tinted glasses and thinking that this was the the absolute peak of 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 civilization or, or maybe maybe not like the peak ever but like the the that sort of past peak of of where we might have got to. I, w- I would not. It's not quite that, right? Okay. I think it's quite that. I think what it is is that we have had that for so much in our history. Uh, in our intellectual history where the classical has has been the peak, has been, you know, completely uncontroversially the peak of civilization from the Middle Ages onwards, um, that we, we don't, we can't quite shake that idea. Now, of course, it's not that, like, it's a, it's an absurd uh, suggestion uh, today. And there's no, you're never going to get some sort of, uh, some person who will say that nowadays and say, oh, well, actually, that's when we got everything. That's when everything was absolutely the best. <laughs> um, or, you know, or they'll probably be a mad person <laughs> um, or or possibly one or two commenters on that article. <laughs> I think. Yeah, the Romans had it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but I do think that, that it, it permeates into the the culture of the way that we understand the way we think about the classical. Mm. I mean, um, there's 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 definitely something like I was I was I was really thinking about last night before this interview. I was watching a few things on on kind of Caesar's time just to get myself in the right mindset and the sort of thinking about it. And something that struck me is just how like there's there's two things. There's there's first of all is civilization then or or like life in in ancient rome especially when it was at its peak not to use the term we've just disparaged but um, they it was really not that dissimilar from where we're at today in terms of like pe- people would i don't know maybe imagine you'd be strolling through ancient rome and you'd be like dodging the shit on the street and there'd be beggars and it'd be all filthy and dirty it's just like that's just not what it was like like in terms of hygiene and cleanliness, it was much closer to like modern day than we would we would probably imagine. Like, like obviously not quite there, but like comparative to maybe how we imagine the rest of history to have been. It, it, like, I, I don't. Uh, you think- know what? I, th- I think there is a bit of a fallacy in history in the way we imagine history a lot of the time, which is we always have this idea that anyone from any point of history is wearing brown and has like you know big dirty smears up their face yeah. <laughs> uh, they've got bits of straw coming out of their hair um, I think we always imagine that that is the case when it's like no like you know you, 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 you if you were to transplant a baby from today back you know say in the in the 900s put them in Ireland in the 900s and raise them in the monastery, they're going to have all of the same feelings and experiences and understandings um, that of their contemporaries. And that, you know, on a physical level, they're still going to be as cleanly, you know, try to be as clean as we are and all the rest of it and all these, all these concerns that we have. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the thing is like, there is a lot of writing about Rome, especially when Rome got very big it was pretty rough. It was pretty nasty. Um, the, yeah. In terms of, you know, I, I, I don't think I would have fancied living there, <laughs> especially if you read uh, Juvenal and his, um, he, he, he writes some wonderful satire 
on what it's life, what it's like to to live in the big city. And he's he's basically talking about you're constantly avoiding roof tiles coming down at you. Someone's going to knock you down in a carriage. Are they going to stab me in the in the night and take my money? <laughs> and that's where the you know that's where the big parallel comes from. I think is like the the alienation of city living. Mm. Mm. That's a that's that's a point I actually hadn't considered. Um, yeah, no, like because then I was thinking more more in terms of the uh, the fact that a lot of the the tropes or just sort of myths of 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 ancient Rome have kind of just like made their way into our our vernacular without like you really don't think until you sit down and consider how many like phrases and like sayings that we have that are so to do with ancient Rome that are just like. C- common things you know you like there's crossing the rubicon the ides of march the barbarians at the gates it's it's all there in our language and, and like part of me is wondering like is our obsession because it's in our language or does the is the fact that it's in our language and we still consider it an indication that it's still relevant well I'm, again i think it's it's, it's back to this thing of we have this landmark in the cultural consciousness. We have this thing this is that overshadows so much stuff that's going on, even you know, in modern political terms as well, the way political systems are influenced by the Roman Republic. Mm. Um, and a great example is America, right? So America has a Senate, America, uh, you know, which sits in the capital. Um, it was intentionally a system that was intentionally based on the Roman Republic Um, and the idea was we can't possibly have a democracy because that would be you know that would be insane we can't do that we need to be like the Roman Republic so we need a good oligarchy we need uh, which is you know the Senate uh, we need a sort of democracy light, which is the House of Representatives, uh, which is, yeah, the uh, yeah. And then we need a sort of king-like figure as well, which is, uh, you know, in Roman Republican terms, that would be the consul, was considered like in Polybius's analysis of the Roman system as a mixed constitution. Um, and this, this is wonderful story from I think it's the uh, the federal convention when um, it's uh, Benjamin Franklin he just stands up after four days of constant debate and he just says can we please stop talking about ancient Greece and Rome (laughs) only models for building a country and there's like this awkward silence and someone says so anyway, in Rome, the- <laughs> it's like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> this is the thing. So when it comes to our language, the fact that we have all this stuff in it, it's no surprise to me at all mm. because we are constantly mediating this stuff and we are constantly understanding the present through that lens, you know? Well, that said, I want to I want to talk about some of the the comparisons you do draw um, that perhaps we can learn something from. Um, sure. Before we started recording, there I was just raising some of the the ideas that you you uh, you put forward in the article. So some of the comparisons you drew, 
um, between uh, Trump and and Julius Caesar, especially in terms of like their their personality and their bravado. Uh, so some of the phrases are just really striking. Like it could be literally, you could just be talking about about Trump. It's like questions were constantly raised about his fitness for office. He operated within an entirely new set of rules, overturning procedure and bending the law, whether it was uh, whenever it was expedient. Um, like just it just goes on like this for for several paragraphs. Where I'm just like, this is really shocking. You talk about like his uh, lavish displays of wealth, his love for gold. Um, and then, but mo- most interesting for me was, uh, your, your comparison between, uh, Twitter and Trump's use of Twitter and Caesar's use of, um, the Contio. Do you want to, do you want to maybe give like a little, uh, like explanation of, of, of what that is? Cause I'm sure you will do a better job than me. <laughs> sure. Sure. No problem. I'll, I'll give it a go. So, uh, you know, in, in the article, it's necessary. You got a word limit and you're painting a picture. So things are, uh, things get a little simplified. Um, and you need to sort of smooth things out, especially with something that's very complicated, like the, you know, the Contio, which is a whole political sphere. Mm. So in a nutshell, the, the Contio was the place in which the, the ruling elite could address and engage with the people as a whole. Now there's big quotation marks around that word, the people. Um, because basically, you know, th- there was any group of common people was the people. And this is, uh, you know, it's an interesting concept when it comes into sovereignty, but we'll probably get into that later. Um, so the what generally happened at the Contio was the this was the arena in which Laws could be debated. Um, it was also, the, you know, the arena for delivering news, you know, political goings on, what's happening in the provinces. Um, and, it, it, you know, it seems like there was also a bit of a, there could be a bit of a propagandizing element to it as well. Um, and it created this forum where messages could be delivered and um, you know this, and this was all very much in conjunction with the Senate. So the Senate is suggesting things, or is proposing ideas. Um, they're coming to the Contio. Uh, they're being sort of debated in front of the people who don't have a say in this. So it's it's it, it, it's a it, in one way it's a one way conversation, but at the same time. It's a two-way conversation in the sense that the crowd could get pretty rowdy. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't out of the question for someone to get lynched, um, for, you know, a roar to come out. Plutarch has this story about a, a scene at the Contio where he says, the shout from the people was so loud that it knocked a crow out of the sky, stunned, fell down into the middle of the crowd and was uh, and, and died. And which, like, of course, is bullshit. But like, <laughs> like, I like, I can't imagine that we have much louder sounds now in the world than we than they did in antiquity. Yeah. But I think there is a thing there. I think we've got to understand that at one of these events, 
in antiquity, the crowd was the loudest thing in the world, barring, you know, natural disasters. So whether that's on the battlefield or in the forum, the roar of a shouting crowd is the loudest thing that you can conceive of. Mm. So, um, I, you know, I think that it, it, there is a real power there. So it was, it, it's a very unevenly balanced situation. It's not this amazing haven of debate. It's not the mix in, in, in democratic Athens, right? Where every citizen gets their say and things like that. Mm. But it does, it trundles along and it does the job. Now, when Caesar comes along, what happens is Caesar finds himself, he's trying to propose this land legislation in 59. And he is already extraordinarily popular. Um, and he is a total... Mm, he, in some senses, he's an outsider. In other senses, he's obviously a part of the elite. You know, he, he's, part of, he, he's part of an ancestry that traces itself back to Venus. You know, so the goddess Venus. So, like, in terms of being establishment, you can't get much there. But there are all these differences in the way that he does things. So he dresses differently, he talks differently, and he's a big firebrand for the people. Um, and anyway, so he he gets he goes into this into the Senate to talk about his uh, landmark legislation that he's trying to pass, and the Senate essentially shut him down. And he says, "Right, okay, here's what I'm going to do." I'm going to go through all of this legislation line by line. And you tell me if there's anything to speak up if you disagree. And as he goes through the legislation, there's not a, not a peep out of the whole house. And he says, okay, so we will pass this legislation then. Uh, veto immediately. Just ruled out. Mm. Just, just can we pause for one sec? Just, just uh, the legislation was it? It was to do with the the de- de- uh, the democratization of like land ownership. It was it was the redistribution yeah. of land. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's that's another thing we can get into, which is like the you know the socioeconomic situation that was going on in Rome at that time. Um, but uh, in this in this case, when he was vetoed his response to this blocking, this deadlock that he met in the political institutions was to say, right, well, we this is a branch of government that I don't need anymore. I'm not going to use this branch of government. I'm going to go directly to the people instead. And again, now when we're talking about the people, we're talking about whoever shows up. So he goes to the Contio and he's talking about this very important measure that's going on. And this very, very popular, popular bill. But he basically, now we don't have, you know, we don't have the, the 
the words that were spoken at the time. But, you know, he's explaining what's happening here. And he's saying, well, you know, you're the people. You're the ones who can do this vote. Sovereignty of the people. I'm the popular champion. Let's just do it anyway. And now there's a, there's a gap that has to be met between announcing the bill at a contio and then actually passing it to the assembly. Um, and during this time is a massive political crisis that's going on, as you can imagine. But also we've got to think about you know, who's going to be turning up to these contios because there's now no longer um, influence coming in from the Senate to, uh, to, to challenge the bill. Um, although Caesar did have two very important allies, uh, Pompey and Crassus, mm. you might have heard of. Um, yeah, Pom- who, Pompey's the one he went to war with eventually, right? Yes, exactly, right. So this is, and this is, this is the thing that we see later on is how these systems, how this, this populism fractures, ultimately it fractures apart um, in, in Rome anyway. Mm. And well, any, any, you know, it, this all ends with um, a senatorial de- delegation coming in representing, you know, the law of how politics is done, trying to break this vote up. And Caesar's supporters jump them, basically. So they they break the fast case of the other consul for the year, Bibulus, and they dump a bucket of shit over it. Mm. Um, which is, you know, like, it's obviously it's profoundly insulting on top of injury. Um, but it's also, there's also a real symbolism here because they also attack two tribunes of the plebs. And the plebs are meant to be the, you know, the people who both protect and represent the people. Mm. And this group that comes and does that says, well, actually, no, you're not the people. You're not the people. We're the people to these people. And Bibulus ends up running off uh, and isn't seen again in public for the rest of the year. So it's really about how the real parallel is about harnessing popular power in order to perform the anti-constitutional mm. is in how you harness the idea of the people and the idea of the righteous people as a tool against the corrupt elite and how that in itself justifies destroying the political systems themselves, the procedures, the laws, and the conventions that sort of hold the thing going, mm. hold the thing together. Um, now, the, you know, you're talking about the, the the land legislation itself. And that's a very good point, right? Because this land legislation was probably very, very long overdue. Yeah, because uh, um, like a lot, of, a lot of the a lot of the land had just uh, so it was originally like you can correct me if I'm wrong. I just want to make sure I'm getting this right. Originally, like the land was had been sort of more evenly distributed amongst soldiers and had been given to to centurions or or just like soldiers from the Roman army and generals and whatnot. And then because they had 
been off at war for for ages then eventually the sort of land fell into disrepair and then sort of slowly got absorbed more and more into into ownership of 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 that sort of senatorial class who, whose estates are suddenly ballooning and the, i think i think it was like like almost like half of all of the land in rome was owned by by like some some members of the senate or like of the Rome, mm-hmm. of the of, of estates in the roman empire they just they they were coming to amass more and more and more and more land and and, and wealth because of that and actually that's that's it was one of the things that i like so there's some of some of the parallels that i i i i look at in in terms of this is not is not like specifically to do with like caesar's use of of populism as much as it is about the conditions that created it Mm-hmm. And like because because that's that's really like the the situation that we see we see in in Britain and in America even more so at the minute is this this concentration of wealth in the hands of like a smaller and smaller and smaller group of people um, to the point where you know you you could say that this this ruling class because there is there is so much overlap between like that top one percent and the people who are involved in political circles like the people who okay. It might not be the, the the congressmen and the senators themselves, but like they, the people, the the wealthiest people in the world are the people driving the legislation, like through lobbyists. They're saying, "Here's what we want. Here's your donations. Yeah, like, make uh, it happen." And funding the politicians mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, the, there's a lot of wealthy politicians, but like, uh, ultimately, the laws that are being proposed are being written by the lobbyists of some of the biggest corporations in the world unfortunately um and mm-hmm. and it's, it's really interesting to to, to kind of look at those those parallels for me um yeah and- yeah and, and you know this is this is another thing that's really interesting about when you look at what caesar is doing so caesar's campaigning on this idea right this idea of land redistribution but in practice what's actually happening is He's massively enriching himself in the process of doing this. And he's enriching his big landowner friends through this. Um, so, and I'm talking about, you know, small numbers of, of his close friends. So a, a good example is Crassus, for example. Um, Crassus was, um, uh, you know, closely involved with the, 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 the publicani, who are the, the tax farmers in the provinces. And what, you know, Caesar pushed through using this popular power was let's cut, let's basically grant a remittance to all the tax farmers of a third so that they, um, you know, so that we could get those, that big corporate interest Mm. off the hook, Mm -hmm. um, for example. Um, But yeah, in terms of the actual situation starting out, this is absolutely right, and this, you know, and this is this is a condition that was set that started off in Rome, um, right back a hundred years previously. Um, what happened with Rome was it went from being sort of lurching from one existential crisis to another in terms of its its wars across the. Mediterranean, but it, it, you know, particularly with its, its old enemy Carthage, um, the it suddenly fell into enormous wealth, and this you know this radically transformed society, and all of a sudden you have and you have this wealth 
flooding into the you know, the top one percent, and yeah, the, so these areas around Italy, which had been primarily you know tenant farmers, um, were all being bought up and accumulated and merged into these huge uh, latifundia. And they were all being manned by slave labor. So this huge number of slaves that were coming in was displacing um, the labor there. That was another one of the things that Caesar was running on, actually. Caesar was saying that, you know, when it comes to uh, working these big industries, I think it was uh, no more than two-thirds of the labor can be slave labor, which, you know, it, it, it's one of these ways in which it's really hard to map left and right onto ancient Rome. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really difficult um, because, you know... So Caesar, like Caesar, was, Caesar was trying to make it so that there was not more than two-thirds of work being done by, sla- by slave labor. That was his yeah, proposal. Okay. Eliminate the amount of slaves okay. in the workforce, okay. um, concentrated in workforces to enable jobs for people because the the number of jobless was enormous mm-hmm. in the city because they'd all been displaced by this uh, by what was going on with um, land. Yeah. I mean, you like you 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 say it's difficult to map left and right onto ancient Rome. It's difficult to map left and right onto modern America, like 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 Florida. Florida went for Trump. And voted for a fifteen dollar minimum wage at the same time, mm-hmm. like the, the those mm-hmm. like the, and whilst Trump m- might have been sort of okay with that, it didn't seem like like the Republican Party was at all. Like that's that's not what they like the Republicans in in America, the Conservative Party is about at all. So there's a very sort of anti-conservative policy, like put like, but yet they they voted Trump and for like a higher minimum wage. So I think that the one of the things is that's interesting is is that like breakdown of what would be traditionally popular for a, like a, a leader of of the right to to say it can be kind of mapped on to the fact that 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 caesar was also breaking a lot of these conventions like it wouldn't i don't know i feel like you can correct me if i'm wrong but it it it, it might have been unthinkable previously for a consul to suggest that you know we take some land away from the senators <laughs> Yeah, I I think I think certainly for um, like there there had been firebrand politicians before and things you know at different levels. Um, the thing with Caesar is a lot to do with just how well he did it, and he did it at such an explosive time. Um, there's a very interesting prototype of Caesar in the figure of uh, Tiberius Gracchus. And he sort of, he comes onto the scene about 60 years earlier, 70 years earlier. Um, And he's one of these tribunes of the plebs uh, or tribune of the people. And a tribune, so these are an interesting office that's going on, that, that exists here. So they can propose legislation without senatorial authority um, they can veto other legislation, but there's 10 of them. And, you know, just like today, the actual people, when they're voting, they don't vote as one block. They don't vote with just a single interest in mind. 
Um, so you have some more conservative, in quotation marks, tribunes, things like that. But Tiberius Gracchus, uh, suppose, so the story goes anyway, I think there's a lot of doubt cast on this, but he's he's traveling up from, I think maybe it's Ostia, and he sees all these poor people living, you know, who once were the noble Roman yeoman farmer scrabbling around in the dirt and having to pack up because these farms have come in and are moving into Rome. And he suggests a similar kind of land reform thing that's going on with Caesar. And his, he has an opponent, Octavius, who is another uh, tribune of the people. But they're, they're actually friends. They're, you know, they're family. They've got close family ties and things like that. And he stands up and he says, I'm going to veto this. And Gracchus's response is to say, if you veto this, because this bill is the will of the people, that means you're not a proper tribune anymore. So we can put your position up to the vote. And this is totally unheard of. Like this, you know, you just don't do this. What people's, a magistrate's legitimacy stems from the act of election. It's not that they, you know, they in Roman terms, they don't lose their legitimacy through their actions because that's why you only have one-year terms and at the end of the one-year term, you then become liable to prosecution. And if you've done something, that's how it works in the Roman system. And many people were, you know, it's, it was not uncommon to finish uh, a stint as a magistrate and then come back to face a litany of court cases, um, depending on how badly behaved you've been or how much your enemies really don't like you. Um, and basically what happens is they they have, hold an impromptu vote and they get Octavius pushed out of office. And, you know, there's a, this, this really striking moment um, in the history, which is, so the, the body of the tribune is considered sacrosanct. To, to touch and lay hands on the tribune is to assault the people, again, this capital T, capital P mm. body itself. And as soon as he's voted off, Gracchus' men grab him and pull him down off the speaker's platform. Now, the senatorial response to this was to run out, break the legs off tables, and beat him to death. Beat, beat Gracchus. Yeah, I was going to say, is it, that's, that, that was the story. He gets, he, gets beaten, he gets beaten to death with the leg of a table. I was like, geez, that sounds sure. a bit brutal. Like I, yeah. you know, I, I, wish, I wish some bad things on some fucking horrible politicians sometimes, but I don't know if I would wish them being beaten to death with the legs of a table. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's interesting, right? And it's, it's where this stuff sort of comes, it, it, you know, it, it's where this stuff is. Everybody's kind of making this stuff up as they go along almost, despite the this big culture of, oh, we always do things the proper way. We always do things the right way. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, like that's that's definitely something that that like something actually you touched on um, in the article is that that kind of the kind of maybe not arrogance, but the the kind of belief of Ro- the the Roman originalism and their sort of belief in the the I think the word you use is the sacrosanct sacrosanct nature of their of their conventions is that they 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 believed so strongly in the power of their own democracy and their own like system that they were unwilling to consider that that perhaps it was wasn't in fallible and then they were completely shocked when when someone came in and, and tried to break it down and then like, like successfully did and it with caesar and it really parallels um like not only in britain but uh, 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 in ways but like in america especially like trump has just gone in and for four years he just undermined and destroyed every single convention that you could have imagined things that just they weren't codified in the constitution but they just they were just expected and and people just always believed that that's the way it would happen and you could see it like even before he was elected with the the tax returns thing like it, it wasn't like it just it wasn't even considered that, that a presidential candidate let alone the person who then got elected just wouldn't show you his tax tax returns and and yet he just went like and he was still it's amazing he was still saying the same thing four years later it's like yeah no i'm under audit i'll show you when it's done like yeah. he just literally yeah. said it like a few weeks ago and i was like this is amazing he's still using the same yeah. fucking line <laughs> it's in the post mate i will yeah. absolutely have it to you next week <laughs> just <laughs> But yeah, and like at this point, I think it was probably more of a troll that he was saying it like that. But um. yeah, and you know, you gotta wonder just how much of this is really driving the appeal, because these conventions they don't just create a way things are done, but they create things a way they create a way things are said as well, and they create a sort of a voice and an approach and uh, and this and this and we will hit this point and this point and this point in the speech and it is true that so many politicians are virtually indistinguishable from one another and then you have someone like Trump comes along and it is so different it is like he's just he's so rude apart from anything else like that maybe to to many people this is this does seem like a breath breath of fresh air yeah on some level even though it's a breath of absolutely repulsive air (laughs) um, at least it isn't this thing which is so disconnected at least this is somebody who is you know who isn't taking care over what they're saying who is you know this this American um, ideal of shooting from the hip um, is yeah. I think that's really interesting, and I think that's that's another area where you know Caesar's comparison comes out is just these different things, these this sort of the slight relish in being a bit of a baddie. Mm. Yeah, no, he definitely, he definitely like leaned into it heavily. I mean, it's not like he started off being someone or well, not like he started off his, his campaign in 2015 with, you know, some nice, very sort of placid declarations of intent to run. Like he came straight out with it. It was just like, yeah, the Mexicans, they're coming, they're rapists, they're, 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 they're coming, they're sending their robbers and their criminals. And like, he didn't, he didn't start by like, just trying to like slowly like go into it. He just went full force ahead for it. 
Um, and like, but he's literally like a wrestling heel. He's literally a party. It's so amazing. Like, <laughs> you know, in every film he's in, he, like he, he, he always he, like he's he's insisted he gets cameos in any film filmed in his building, which is you know, I think that's probably the reason why he was in things like Home Alone too. Um, but he's always played the the dick. Yeah. Character who just wanders on and is like the the, the other good example is um, the, the the Wall Street sequel when he's like literally talking about oh you and me Gordon Gecko and it's like right in this film about you know the the the, the evil of greed <laughs> he's like but yeah. Uh, yeah, like I mean, you 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 put you put in the article about how the more outrageously they behaved, the more devoted their followers became. And you also talked about like this is the the thing that really made me sit up and, and listen um, to what you were you were saying was the you said the political class of the time failed to understand his appeal. And honestly, that's been the most striking thing for me since the election. The most infuriating thing is watching the entirety of the left in America, like anyone anyone who who was like anti-Trump. Just, like, ignore the fact that he got 70 million fucking votes. 70 million. That's, more, like, that's like 7 million more than last time. He increased his, his vote share amongst um, uh, black voters and amongst um, Latino voters. And, and like, after, after four years of, of, of the entire, I don't want to use say liberal elite, but like the entire political like establishment, aside from the ones that were so corrupt that they decided they'd like tie themselves to Trump and go along for the ride and see what the, they could get out of it. Aside from that, the entire political class just like threw everything in the kitchen sink at him for four years and he got seven million more votes and nobody mm. is saying, hmm, why? No one is asking why. And, and that's like literally the, 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 that's the thing that really made me go, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe we're in a little bit of trouble here because people aren't asking themselves why he's appealing. They're, they're, and I, like, honestly, I don't think it's anything to do with Donald Trump. I, okay, maybe, like, I don't think that, like, if you really broke it down, that it's anything to do with, with his, like, winning smile or his, like, stick it to the, the elite's kind of attitude. It's the fact that he's not them. And if you tell people for four years, you have to do this, you are a bad person if you do not vote against Donald Trump. Like, a certain amount of people, especially when they're being told that by people who who have legitimately failed to address a lot of the problems in America, like a, like an entire political class that has been, like Pew did some research that showed that there is no correlation over the last four years between what voters want and what actually happens in legislation. It is and the only, t the only time you find that correlation is when you input like what the, what the, what the donors were, were asking for. And like what, mm -hmm. what, what the big corporations were, were trying to push through, um, using lobby groups and, and whatnot. And, and the, I, I think that everyone has missed the fact that like it's nothing to do with, with Trump or Joe Biden. It's the fact that like they, they feel that the entire political class has kind of failed them. And like anything that they can throw at it to, to fuck with the system is, is better than more of the system. And that's a really dangerous place to be at. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely couldn't agree more, you know, and this is the thing. So for all that, you know, with the article that I'm writing, with the research that I'm doing, you know, I'm talking about 
methods and styles and things like that. For all of that and for all of the shitty things that Caesar did, I can't help but feel if I was sitting there in 59 BC and I was, you know, I was waking up hungry in my tiny flat, I would be down there at the front of the, at the you know, at the front of the crowd saying, good for you, Caesar, you know, I would say death to the Aristos. Mm. Um, because the, 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 there is a level of alienation. And I think that's the, that's the really key thing here. Um, that when you, when you're looking at this system of, in Rome, you have an underclass, right? They have a word for it, the proletarii. And you, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of difference today. We still have underclasses, you know, like the, whether that's the, the, the proletariat, whether that's the precariat. Um, I think you, you, you take somebody in, um, somebody in Michigan, who has no healthcare, um, who is making a starvation wage, who's trying to bring up kids and essentially has no interaction whatsoever with any government policy helping them, where all of the discussion that goes on is about tax cuts for the middle class, uh, you know, if, if, if there's anything that's going to supposedly... Um, be targeted at them, but there's that many people that totally undercut that level anyway for that to make any difference to their lives. Um, and then, you know, you, you tie into that people of colour and how nothing is done to address the systemic racism. Um, you know, you're talking about those, you know, with Trump supporters, it's a little different, perhaps. Mm. Um, but as you say, you know, they're increasing their vote among people of color. Um, the, 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 the alienating experience of living in America today is bound to produce some, you know, something of a visceral reaction to that, I think. Mm. Yeah. Like it's, 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 yeah. Like both times in 2016, I was, I think I was more horrified. 2020, I was braced for it, like like the, the the big Trump vote. I didn't I didn't find it in any way shocking at all. 2016, I, I didn't really expect it, if I'm honest. Like I watched Hillary be a really bad candidate, and I watched her like I watched the Democrats like just screw over Bernie Sanders, and go, oh, they really missed a trick there. Like you, you pick the guy who's got 25,000 people at his rallies if you want to counter counter the guy who's who's drawing big crowds. Like you don't you don't pick the you don't pick the the established politician. You pick the guy that's got like the the fervent support. But you know that was you know they they sort of made their bed and they were forced to sleep in it. But then they did the exact same thing again in two thousand twenty. <laughs> and and, yeah. and honestly, I think if COVID hadn't hit, that we'd be looking at four more years without an issue because the the place that Trump lost votes was the older suburban white voters, and it's clear that they're the people who are scared of. His, his 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 attitude to to covid and like his, his administration's policies towards it and that's where he lost it because that's where he lost arizona that's where he's lost pennsylvania 
Um, I don't know. I don't know about the demographics in Michigan and Wisconsin. I haven't. I, I, um, I can't speak to that. But that's where he lost those two big states, and and that kind of suggests to me that the the Democrats have definitely learned nothing because they will they will take this win and they will go, excellent, we've won. That's it. <laughs> Progressives, we didn't need you anyway. Mm. As well as the next thing, um, you know, the, 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 you start to see the. I think it's going to be interesting to see what relationship Biden has with the progressives now that he's in. I mean, um, there's talk of it. he was going to take Elizabeth Warren, um, and, yeah. but he's he's, he's already there's already talk of that being ditched. Um, she's probably not going to make it into the cabinet, and that would have been a really good token position. Like even just token, like you, you don't even have to let her do that much. Just just give her the position. But like I think, yeah, we'll see what happens. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, but you know. Again, it's you know we keep talking about how do you map left and right onto this stuff, and you know look at you you hold Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump up, and now I hate the I hate the the sort of centrist comparison to this of saying that they're the same thing, but there is there is a way there is a prism in which that these these two very very opposed positions do calibrate, and that's. That's in ideas about jobs and security and just like pro- uh, prosperity, individual prosperity as well for people who are at the lowest, uh, you know, doing the worst economically. Mm. I mean, Bernie's a lot more um, kind of isolationist than people maybe realize. He's he's a lot more similar to yeah. Trump in terms of he's he's quite protectionist. He's not a big fan of of NAFTA or. Um, TTIP or any of those big free trade agreements, and he also is 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 speaking to the same language that that you sort of say that that Trump and Caesar both used is that rallying against the corrupt elite, and that's where that's mm-hmm. who Bernie is speaking to, and that's the the kind of overlap I think it is is that that drain the swamp kind of kind of attitude. Well, it's it's this is the thing. So it's you like people get their noses out of joint a little bit with populism because we can say, okay, well, there is there is Donald Trump populism and there's Bernie Sanders populism. Um, but, you know, that's it's okay to say that when we understand that this is such a wide tent. Um, like, Donald Trump's populism is very much about anti-constitutionality and authoritarianism, whereas Bernie Sanders' populism is a totally non-authoritarian um, and, and very, you know, very constitutionalist. You know, he, he doesn't get on TV and propose breaking the law, for example, mm. which apparently <laughs> is the bar. <laughs> like, how much? How much of that do you think is um, based on like Trump's like like conscious authoritarianism, and how much of it is just the fact that no one told him no for forty years, and he's just used to getting his way? Well, I I don't know. I mean. I, the the problem is right. So, if when some now this is another thing that's probably overused, right? But when someone's gaslit, what it makes a person do is they start questioning everything. They start questioning all of the motivations of every single action and how everything's come to be. 
And it does make you feel a little bit like that when you're trying to deal with Trump. You're trying to like, oh, did he, is he, you know, did he use this specific two word phrase in the middle of this weird monologue because he's trying to, you know, implant the idea of authoritarianism. And then you go, wait, maybe I'm being crazy. But it is kind of like that with Trump, right? Because everything aligns. You take a step step back and you see, well, I mean, okay, so he loves dictators. He loves the use of military force against protesters. He, you know, he 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 uh, phrases his political enemies as undesirables. Um, this looks a lot like fascism, and it's too consistent. Is it too consistent to be simply a product of you know a warped mind? And I, yeah, so I don't know the answer to that, you know. But um, it's certainly he's certainly got form. Yeah. So um, so to move on to then, like we're looking at uh, you, you like one of the, 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 the there's a sort of general point of of what you were you're, you're trying to say in the article is maybe we need to like watch out for these like signals and sort of similar moves towards the people becoming sort of more okay with an authoritarian leader that's defying convention and undermining political institutions, especially ones that now we, we kind of consider to be the very basis of the, the, the success of the developed world is like democracy and, um, you know, freedom, you, you're right to do. But like the political institutions that under, that sort of underlie all of that is the thing that he's really like attacking in a way. And um, that's kind of what happened in in ancient Rome as they, or the late Roman Republic, as they sort of slid then towards dictatorship. And then there was, uh, there was nothing, well, they didn't, they didn't go back from there. That was it. Like they went went to dictatorship and then um, that was it. You had an emperor until, until the end, as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware. And like, what do you think the the consequences for us in the modern day of of this undermining of of political institutions? Because it's something we've seen in the UK as well, actually. Like um, the last few years, you've seen um, just things that you would never have seen. Like um, mm. recently, you had the 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 removal of all civil civil liberties, basically just by diktat without real debate like thankfully we got a debate at least on the last um set of covid lockdowns but like just just to say like they just said all your civil liberties are gone and there was no debate no vote they just said it and and that's kind of concerning then you can go further back to theresa may being held in contempt of parliament for the first time there was uh just the Mm -hmm. the absolute shambolic state of the entire brexit process um like the, the the poor like explanation for like different policies they had like the the collapse of like uh, diplomatic norms there was the like the the impact assessment debacle with with david davis where it was just like like yes no we have them well no you can't see them no actually they don't exist oh no but they do exist but they're not meant to be read and just all the things that like would have been 10 years ago considered completely impossible have just happened um, over the past mm. five, ten years, um, in, in both sides of the Atlantic, like, wh- what do you think the consequences of this are? Is there, is that like, should we be genuinely concerned for the state of our democracy? Oh well, I mean, like, yeah, <laughs> of, of course we should be concerned for the state of our democracy. But then, you know, we should always be concerned for the state of um, democracy. I think this is the thing. I think, you, you know. 
there's a lot of talking about the uh, the the elements of democracy that li- that existed in Republican Rome. You'll get a lot of people coming on and say, "Well, hang on, Rome was no democracy," and to which you know response is right. Well, is Britain? democracy you know because people will say oh come on rome isn't a democracy it was ruled by the elite you know they all came from the same families and they um you know the average person had no say in uh political events and actually the fact is that if you were in uh, in the roman republic and you were an ordinary person you lived in the city of rome you had the potential for a lot more impact on political reality than I do, you know, living um, living in the UK today. Um, in terms of the way things have been going in terms of taking this sort of populist slant towards this idea that, well, no, actually, because we have the will of the people mm. and we have the sovereignty of the people and that trumps all of the rest of it that trumps every other institution and every other thing. Um, It's it's extremely problematic. Um, I don't see, I don't think I I quite share the same view with um, the COVID restrictions simply like I, I obviously it's um it's totally unprecedented obviously yeah no that's that's it's more it's more my point like you know and i don't want to get into like whether it's necessary or not but like just the idea that we we would say no we don't we don't need a vote or a debate on the removal of something that we considered so fundamental to our our our, our democracy and just say okay it's done gone bye sure sure there is that i mean yeah i I, I, yeah, it's, you know, it's probably hard to talk about it without yeah, seeing yeah, yeah. it as, you know, without understanding that, that view on which, to be fair, I, obviously, you know, as as not being an epidemiologist and everything, mm. I, I'm never going to be able to give an informed view yeah, on that. Yeah. So, um, But with other stuff, I think... You know, where you see it and the media complicity as well. So having a newspaper with um, with judges on the front cover and the headline enemies of the people, mm. for instance. Now, that is really, really profound. I think that was one of the most profound moments in um, British political history for quite a long time, actually. Um because this that was summing it up suddenly there what there was no dressing over the you know the, the populist ideology of it all that was going on in so many other ways it had been dog whistled in different ways and it had been dressed up in different things but no here here's what it was it was saying okay this institution of government that exists or this institution of the state which exists to um, ch- keep a check on the government um, to provide oversight is illegitimate because it provided oversight that is contrary to the will of the people. Mm. And that is that is the really scary thing, right? Because that's how this where this stuff comes from. You, if you were to get a, a fascist in Britain you know, coming up through the system, 
He's not going to be dressed in swastikas. He's not going to be wearing jackboots. You know, he'll be wrapped in the Union Jack. Mm. Um, and he will be doing it for the people and for the the ancient democracy. Yeah, I think it was it was Tim Shipman, the editor of the Sunday Times, and he wrote um, after the Brexit vote that uh, politicians had found the big fat pot of electoral mandate and they were going to use it to justify whatever they wanted mm-hmm. which was i thought was a fantastic yeah. quote actually he's a smart smart guy tim shipman uh, is, is both his books on the last sort of few years of of politics he wrote um what was it fallout and all-out war about brexit and the aftermath They're both fantastic books like they they read like a thriller <laughs> um this is uh, i mean maybe not for everyone but at least for me i find it very exciting to listen to to read um so if we if we are like saying and, and you're just right we should always be like watching our democracy you know it's it's a you know, I can't remember who said it, but like politics and everything, political institutions, and they're all constantly in a state of entropy. And it's it's up to us to kind of ensure that that doesn't, we don't allow things to degrade to the point where they're no longer useful. Um, but how would you suggest we, uh, you know, try and try and watch out for this or maybe try and improve our ourselves as a nation and, and, and avoid becoming ancient Rome? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Again, the the drawing it as a direct idea of um, that we can that we can really take real lessons from ancient Rome it really has to be in the most abstract way. Um, obviously, giving the the distance, I'm, I'm reminded of that like that thing in Peep Show, the Peep Show, brilliant Peep Show joke, when Mark writes business secrets of the pharaohs. Um, now, the first thing to remember is that uh, given the staunch agra- the, the uh, agra- agrarian uh, setup of Egypt, means that there are virtually no lessons that one. Yeah, can he's draw. written the whole book on it. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> my uh my f- um, my friends are constantly referring to my book um Bre- uh they call they keep calling it break the brexit secrets of the pharaohs <laughs> <Very good. laughs> yeah. um but but yeah so the i mean you know the, the, there's i think there's two main issues one of them which i, I touched on the article um which is about actually having properly uh, having proper debate, the ability to have a proper debate in a way that just isn't possible today. Um, you know, proper forums for ordinary people to speak, for these matters to be talked out and fact-checked and given the given enough light of day but also uh, you know being able to refute them when they're wrong um properly and and this is this is sounding a bit vague but it I, I, because it's sounding a bit vague because i don't know how you do that in a system with uh, you know social media and cambridge analytica and this sort of media domination that we've got, particularly in this country, um, by certain groups, I you know I, I don't know how you can do that and make it a large inclusive process. 
Um, I do think that, you know, so destroying the BBC is a really bad step. Yeah. Um, in that process, you know, for all the BBC's faults, the, the mandate itself is a it's a great idea, right? It's a it's a it's a nice idea on paper. Now, you can get into the ideas of balance and who sets that balance and you know who the new chairman is and all the rest of it. But um, ultimately, having a media company owned by the, the owned by the state or by the, the owned by the country. Yeah. Uh, which is held accountable by various different levels of accountability, um, uh, and a you know a mandate that's based on presenting arguments without bias um, is a is a great idea. The other thing, and more important thing, is about inequality. I think is about exactly what we've been talking about and actually dealing with the situations that drive people into the arms of the opportunistic promisers. Yeah. Um, and, and because that's, you know, that's basically, that's certainly what happened with Rome um, was it became ever more factional, ever more polarised in terms of the political community and you know it, it basically just created a perpetual state of conflict and the, the reason you have an em- emperor rising up out of the ashes of the republic is in a lot of ways is because they were the last one standing you know out of that conflict that went on and evolved and evolved mm. I mean yeah the yeah, the BBC, uh, you, you make a really good point, actually, about it. Um, Peter Hitchens, who I had on a, a few weeks ago, he was very, uh, he was, he was saying he was gonna, he wanted to start a campaign to, to destroy the BBC and replace it with a new broadcaster, um, which I, which I smirked, yeah, which I smirked at and he, he took me to task for it because he was like, I'm really serious. Um, but like, there, you, you make a really good point. It's like, it is. And also, I think that, that people miss this idea that it's, it's not owned by the government. It's owned by us. Like, it's our broadcaster. Mm-hmm. And, and I think people, people have a, a weird view of state owned assets is that they kind of lost this idea of, of having like the uh, things that are commonly owned by all of us. Like, the reason the BBC is there is because it was paid for by your taxes and your parents' taxes and your grandparents' taxes. Like, like, well, assuming that you're, you, you know, your family's lived here for three generations, but you know, it's, it's all, it's, we've all contributed through the history of the country to all of the things that are owned by the state. And, and I think we should, t- I don't know, maybe take a little more pride in ownership because the BBC, is probably not that far away from from being a really fantastic organization. They've lost, I think, a lot of their their credibility over the last few years, but I don't think that's impossible for them to get it back. Like I, I saw Andrea Donis had tweeted a few days ago after the US election that we need in in Britain, we need a really fair and impartial broadcaster like CNN. And I was just like, yeah, exactly. I was like, wow, like you are insane, man. If you think that's going to fix, like, because all of the worst things about media that we have today, like the, the five minute debates, the 10 people on screen all screaming at each other, like the big graphics, like the fear is like breaking news, all like the 24 hour news cycle, all of the worst things about modern media is like, 
CNN, CNN, and CNN. That's like they're the people that brought us all of those things. Um, but you, you're, pro- I think, I think honestly, you said you're not really sure how we get to a point where we can have debate. Is like honestly, and I think it starts with like the, the this kind of long form and um, podcast like discussions because I remember watching, I think after or during the the the, the Brexit vote, um, where there was a, a debate. On from from BBC or Channel Four or something between like two cabinet ministers, it was like a one-hour debate where they were discussing the going into the European Union the first time round, like in the in the seventies. And I watched I don't know twenty-five minutes, thirty minutes of it, and then I had to turn it off because it actually became really depressing because the quality of discussion was incredible. Like they were, they were genuinely discussing like the ideological, socioeconomic, like long-term cultural, like implications of deciding to wed ourselves to Europe. And, and like, I, I was, I was blown away at the quality of debate. And, and honestly, I just, we don't have that. We don't, we don't have someone sitting two people down and being like, right, okay, let's really get to the issue. What do you actually believe? Why do you believe that? And, um, like today, that would not be difficult. You can stream it from anywhere in the world. Like you can, you can do it anytime. It's super easy to set up. And like, obviously that's, that's not exactly how it's going to go. But like, I, I think that, that for us to really regain like our trust in, in politicians, that you, you have to get them to sit down and, and, and just be a little bit like open to like someone pulling up a something that he say, Oh no, I never said that. And someone going, Nope. Okay. Let's check that. And just being like, wait a second, let's check that. Because you can find these things very quickly. And I think we're yet to see it emerge, but I think it's coming that we, we will be able to have these sort of long-form discussions. Like I do look at America as like about five years ahead of us. And it was notable how many politicians uh, have been trying to get on the Joe Rogan show. Like, because it's so huge. Mm-hmm. And he got, he got Bernie um, and he had Tulsi Gabbard on there. And like Trump wanted to come on. But I think that was more a pub- publicity thing. But they were talking about him and Joe Biden going on. And honestly, I think I would learn more about someone, about their policies and whether I thought that they were actually out for, for, for the people in a one hour sit down with someone, just one on one and where they actually grill them and like go, okay, what do you mean by that? Pull that up. Let's see that video where you said that. So I thought you said you didn't say that. What do you mean by that? And just that scrutiny is gone. Yeah, I mean, maybe... Maybe I, mean, I, I guess the, the, the big thing I see hanging over this is the problem of access. And everyone's aware of image. Everyone is so aware of image and so aware of where they go and who they go. And that's why um, I think the people that are actually going on these shows have an, have an idea of what they're going to be able to present when they go on and you get one or two things that are are surprises. You get one or two sort of little gotcha moments or whatever. But in general, in terms of the whole news cycle that's going on with this sort of, because because, the most important part of this is not that, that one interview, right? It's, it's the constant reporting cycle that you get. It's about the constant scrutiny of the individual. And the fact is that the due to you know syndicated news and you know this disparate these disparate news networks, it is so easy for someone important to say, well, actually, you said something pretty unfavorable about me, so no more access mm-hmm. for you. And that's something we've seen 
a lot with Trump. But, you know, we've also seen with Johnson, right? So Johnson's... Yeah, the, well, the, um, the, the Conservatives have had the big fight with Channel 4 for quite a while now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's about, I guess that, it, like, it, it's, it's a very complicated issue, I think. Yeah. And there are lots of different considerations yeah. to make. Now I'm probably just a doe-eyed optimist, but I have to be it sometimes because I spend I spend quite a lot of my day <laughs> considering how how screwed we all are, but I have to try and remain optimistic that there's a way for things to improve. But um yeah, the, before we before we wrap up, is there anything you want to want to plug, point to people towards aside from the article we've 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 discussed? Uh no, not really. I'm just sort of I'm just deep into uh research stuff at the moment, so um that's all but it has been really lovely to chat yeah man that was an absolute pleasure thanks very much thanks so much for listening if you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list and don't forget my book brexit the establishment civil war is now available for pre-order on amazon you'll find the link in the description below until next time thanks so much for listening